almost uh, 40 years ago, and it almost sounds terrible to say it, I went up to university as a university student. I went to the University of Sheffield, and I went to study the Bible, biblical history and literature. And being an art subject, the place where we studied was a brand new arts block. I tried to get a picture on the internet, couldn't find one, but the arts block at Sheffield is a huge, great 20-story building. In fact, it sways in the wind. It's a sort of give in it. And our department was on the sixth floor. It's actually moved now, I understand, but then when I was a student, it was on the sixth floor. So to get on the sixth floor, you either had to climb up the stairs, which is pretty hard going, even for a young fit student like I was then, instead of a fat pastor now, um, or you could go up by the system of lifts, and they'd got a new lift system called the Paternoster lift system. I've often wondered why they called it Paternoster. It means our father, I presume, because you prayed as you got in it. Um, and for those who don't know, I think there may be some... Uh, are there some in Edinburgh? Anybody ever seen this? It's kind of a big rotating system of cabins. You sort of... How to describe it? You stand like this, okay... And on the left-hand side are these two-person cabins going up like this, right to the 20th floor, round and down, in a big loop. And so if you want to go in up or down, they're moving the whole time. So you just jump in one, and then when you come to the floor you want to get out of, you jump out. The worst thing you can do is to hesitate. If you, if you, we used to laugh at watching uh, students put their foot down and then hesitate, and then you got flipped backwards, and the thing's rose breaking down. And so you went up and down on these lifts, and they were quite good fun. You can imagine with students, they did all sorts of weird things like grabbing, your, grabbing your, your coffee or your briefcase and throwing it in the lift and you had to wait 20 stories before it came back down the other side and, and rag week, they tied people up and threw them in, you know, and they went round and round for several hours until somebody, somebody finally let them out. In actual fact, uh, I, I was looking on the internet, see if there's a picture of this, and I discovered this is not a new system. It's actually... There was a system like this at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. I think we've got a picture of it there. It looks kind of, kind of weird with all sorts of people going around like that. However, what we discovered at very busy times was you had a real problem. If you wanted to go up higher than the sixth floor, up to 12 or 18 or whatever, the lifts were exceedingly busy. And they were always full of people, so you couldn't get up. So what you actually had to do was to jump in the downward one, you're following this, yeah? And, and go down six floors to the basement, and there's a big sign that said, do not worry, it will not turn you upside down, because people worried about being turned upside down. Uh, and so you went down the down lift, to the bottom, and then it took you round and back up again. In other words, if you wanted to get up, you had to go down. The only way up was down. On a far more important matter, Jesus taught that the only way up, that is, to God, was down. And that's what I want to talk about this evening. The only way up is down. Here's how he put it in one of his famous sayings. He said, everyone who exalts himself, elevates himself, will be humbled, brought low, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a kind of upside-down world of God's kingdom. And it was so contrary to public and religious opinion then and still today that Jesus told several of his famous parables. You know those stories that Jesus told to illustrate and make this point. 
Uh, and one of them is the one I want to look at this evening. It's a very brief parable. If, you, if you'd like to look in the Bible, it's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it's recorded in the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 18, and verses 9 to 14. If you, there are Bibles in the pews. It might help to look at one, or you can just listen to me. But it's page 1052. Luke 18 and verse 90. This is what Luke tells us in his Gospel. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, said Jesus, that this man rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me try and explain a little bit about this story, not only for when it happened then, but what its importance is for us now. It's a story about two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, when Jesus told this story, everybody listening to him knew exactly who a Pharisee was and who and what a tax collector was. Unfortunately, 2,000 years on, we may know little about either and what we do know may be wrong. And the result is we'll miss the point of the story. So a bit of explanation, first of all, about who the Pharisee was, who the tax collector was, because you'll find that this is a story with a sting in the tail. First of all then, let's consult the dictionary. My dictionary says, Pharisee, noun, one, a member of an ancient Jewish sect teaching strict observance of Jewish traditions. Two, a self-righteous or hypocritical person. Now, at the time when Jesus spoke, only definition one applied. The Pharisees were a strict, orthodox religious group who tried to obey the law of Moses and please God in every detail. And it's largely because of the teaching of Jesus and the New Testament that the second definition came into force. That is, a self-righteous religious hypocrite. But at the time when Jesus told this story, only definition one applied. Everybody looked up to Pharisees as the paragons of virtue, the really keen religious types. They respected them at the pinnacle of religious life. They thought they were the closest people to God. Okay, what about tax collectors? Well, my dictionary says tax collector, noun, a person who collects compulsory financial contributions imposed by a government in order to raise revenue. 
Well, we know that because we've still got them. Death and taxes are the two things that never change in any society. And those who work for the Inland Revenue, and I know there are one or two in the congregation who have or did, I guess most of us regard them as a necessary evil, if I can put that politely. But when Jesus told this story, there were a few extra definitions in the Hebrew dictionary under tax collector. First of all, tax collector, a collaborator. Israel was occupied by the Roman army. And the Jews hated the Romans, and they hated anybody who worked for them. Like tax collectors. Not only that, tax collectors were also regarded as extortioners. You see, taxes were of two kinds, direct personal and land taxation collected by state officials. And indirect taxes of various kinds, customs duties. And what the Romans did, they auctioned off the, the right to gather taxes to the highest bidder. They were called tax farmers. And then they sold the rights down the line to the next man and the next man. And guess what happened? Everybody who had a position at each rung of the system added on their own cut in addition to what the Romans wanted them to gather. And so tax collectors were despised and hated by everyone. You could add even more negative definitions like a thief, a traitor, and a few more that are unmentionable. So, have you got that? These are the two people in the story that Jesus told. Here he is speaking to people who knew this already. Jesus said, I'm going to tell you a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Let me put it this way. If this were a pantomime, which it isn't, the audience reaction would be this. Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. Hooray! And the other, a tax collector. Got the point? So when Jesus says this story is about these two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, who went up to the temple to pray, everybody knew where they fitted. They knew what the outcome and answer to their prayers was going to be. Well, the Pharisee is at the top of the rung as far as God was concerned. And the tax collector was at the bottom, not even on the first rung. But this is a story with a sting in the tail. Everyone is in for a shock as the story unfolds. So let me suggest there are three movements in the story, all right? First of all, going up, in verse 10. Two men, said Jesus, went up to the temple to pray. Why did they go up to the temple to pray? Because the temple in question was located in the city of Jerusalem at the highest point of the city, on Mount Zion. Today, the site is occupied by the Dome of the Rock Mosque. But you can still see its elevation. They also went up because there were some stairs. When you got there, you climbed up into the temple. We can't be sure exactly what the temple looked like, but there is, I've got a picture here of a reconstructed model which you can find in Florida of all places. There's also one in Israel as well if you want to go and look what the temple probably looked like. In other words, the place of worship was not down in the ground at the bottom of a cave or a mine. It was at the highest place the elevated place on a hill. And you'll find all over the world this reflects a kind of metaphorical reality. People talk about God being up. That is above human beings. And all over the world people are instinctively, intuitively aware that there is someone greater than we are. Such a being as God. Above and beyond us, someone greater, better, different. And so more than often, 
people go up in an attempt to reach God. In the early days of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we read that human beings built a great tower called the Tower of Babel because they wanted to try and get up to heaven to reach God. Uh, There were towers all over the ancient world. They're called ziggurats. They're very common in the ancient East where people met together in order to meet with God. The most common places still in the world are usually the highest places. I remember many years ago, in 1972, I was trekking in Nepal when I was out there working and with a party of people and we, we went on a climb up, I suppose we'd call it a mountain, but they called it a hill. It was about 12,000 feet, something like that. And uh, I got ahead of the rest of them because I was fit in those days. And I got to the top of this hill and it was completely bare and deserted. It's quite weird. Except right at the top there was a temple, a place of worship. It's totally deserted. But right at the top there, someone had built a place, a place to worship God. And so it was that these two men in the story, Jesus told, went up to a temple. Not just a temple, but the temple. Uh, The Bible, this book, the record of God's dealings with human beings, uh, tells us how he chose a particular race of people, the people of Israel, and placed them in their own land. And within that land, he selected a particular place where he said he would meet with them and they could communicate with him. The temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Meeting with God in the place he has chosen. So the two men in the story, we're told, went up to pray. There were two special times of prayer in those days in Israel. Every day at nine o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the afternoon for corporate prayer. But people could also go and pray privately if they wanted to at any time during the day. Usually people prayed out loud. And that was probably the case with these two men. They enter the temple and now we see a second movement. Going up, now secondly, looking down. These two men went up to the temple for a purpose to pray. And we discover they're not only very different in the kind of people they are, their prayers are also very different. Both of them look down as they pray. But while the Pharisee looks down on everybody else, The tax collector looks down on himself and won't even lift his eyes from the ground. One prayer is characterized by self-congratulation, the other by self-abasement. And each one of us, when we pray, we pray from one of these two positions. Look first of all at the prayer of the Pharisee, which you can call self-congratulation. The Pharisee is full of self-confidence as he prays. Uh, This is not indicated by the fact that he stood to pray because everybody stood to pray in those days. Rather, it's revealed in what he says. We're told that he prayed about himself. Not just about himself, but himself in comparison with everybody else. From his position, looking down, he's superior to everybody else. He says, I thank you, Lord, I'm not like other men. His superiority to other people is expressed in what he doesn't do and what he does do. He's not a robber, he says. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm especially, he said, I'm not like this tax collector. He looks down and sees this tax collector, maybe close by, trying to pray as well. And listen to what he does do. The law of Moses said that you should fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. This man fasts twice a week. The law of Moses said you should give a tenth of your income back to God. This man tithes everything he has, even his salt that he puts on his food. He puts aside a little tenth to give back to God. He is boasting about what he does. His prayers are recitation 
of all the things he's done which he believes will earn him favour with God. He's got the kind of picture in his mind which I discover that most people have that God marks down a sort of curve. And so he's certain he's in the top half. He's certain he's going to pass with God. He's certain he's going to get to heaven better than everyone else. Now, I guess most of us would be pretty bold to put ourselves that high. But I, I also suspect that very few of us would put ourselves at the bottom. There's always someone a lot worse than us, isn't there? The 20th century version of the tax collector. That's why we love reading the tabloid news about people who've done absolutely terrible things. Because then we feel to ourselves, well, it puts my own bad behaviour in perspective. I'm not as bad as that person that I read about in the newspaper on the television and most of us seem to think, think that we're, we're somewhere comfortably above the path mark for heaven if we compare ourselves with the rest of the population yes, we say, I'm not perfect but I've never stolen anything maybe I've never committed adultery I've never done anything really evil I've never killed anyone in fact, I give to good causes and I try and help other people as much as I can but the bottom line is this as long as I can look down on some other people, then I can look up to God with confidence that he will approve of me. That's what the Pharisees thought, and that's what most people think today. No doubt it was what the audience who heard Jesus thought as well. Now contrast this with the prayer of the tax collector. Not self-congratulation, but self-abasement. We see it in his attitude, even in the way he stands. He stands at a distance, maybe he's not close into the temple. He's on the edge there. He almost is afraid to come in. Maybe the outer, not the inner court, where the Pharisee is standing and sees him. He will not even raise his eyes to heaven, but he constantly, as a sign of grief, beats his breast. And he looks down and he speaks up and his heartfelt prayer is short and simple. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's under no illusions about himself. He doesn't focus on the external that he's sinned, but on his nature that he's a sinner. He's not a sinner because he's sinned. He's sinned because he is a sinner. A sinner by nature. In fact, the translation literally is, God have mercy on me, the sinner. And that drives him to God in desperate prayer. He's not concerned about anyone else but himself. While the Pharisee is complacent because he compares himself with other people, the tax collector is not concerned to compare himself with anyone else. Rather, he focuses on himself and on his own problem. He is not just a sinner like everyone else. He feels, I am the sinner. He stands alone before God, guilty without excuse. He has no mitigating factors to plead, no special circumstances to be taken into account. So he throws himself on the mercy of God as he expresses his only hope and his desperate need, God, have mercy on me. And that is why he's come to the temple. For he knows that the temple is the place that God has provided where sinners can find mercy through the sacrifices that are offered daily by the priests. He is guilty before God, and only God can remove his guilt. And so he throws himself on God's mercy. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever come to that point about yourself? Have you ever stood before God, as it were, or knelt before God, and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner? Or have you said to yourself, well, I'm sure I'll be okay in the long run. 
And I've done some bad things, but there were reasons for it, and I'm sure God will understand that. And I'm better than most people. Or have you ever really understood that in comparison with God and God's holiness, God's perfection, that each one of us are in need of God's forgiveness, in need of God's mercy? So the Pharisee prays to himself. The tax collector prays to God. Two very different people, two very different prayers. Now, the point of the story is this. Which prayer did God hear? Which person did God accept? And here is the final sting in the tail. The reversal of all that the hearers of Jesus would expect. The final movement, which we can call upside down. Here is the verdict of Jesus, verse 14. When he's told a story about the two men praying, he says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The words of Jesus are words of authority. I tell you, he's speaking God's word. Words of authority. Expressed by the word justified. He went home justified before God. It's a word from the law courts. Jesus gives God's verdict on these two men. He says the tax collector goes home justified. To be justified means to be declared innocent. The verb is passive. It tells us that someone else has declared him innocent. It's in the perfect tense, expressing the idea that it's done once for all, it's completed. It's the judge pronouncing his sentence in court and saying, not guilty, free to go, nothing to pay. As the tax collector leaves the temple, his status before God has been changed. He's now in a right standing before God. His sin has been forgiven. His guilt has been removed. He humbled himself before God. And in humbling himself before God, God has exalted him. The only way up is down. The Pharisee, in contrast, leaves the temple just as he entered it, still unjustified. He's still convinced of his own righteousness still comparing himself favorably with others, yet he's still estranged from God. His sin was not dealt with, his guilt remained. Jesus said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. What was his sin? What was he guilty of? His sin above all else was pride and his own goodness before God. That was why Jesus told the parable in the first place. Verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. The word righteousness there and the word justified are the same word in the original language. We either rely on our own goodness, our self-justification, or we abandon all those attempts and throw ourselves on God's mercy, seeking that he might put us right with himself. The difference between the two men in the parable was that the Pharisee was convinced of his goodness while the tax collector was conscious of his sinfulness. Martin Luther said, there are only two sorts of people in the world. Sinners who think themselves righteous and the righteous who think themselves sinners. So in conclusion, almost finished. The challenge of the story is obvious. Are you, am I, like the tax collector or like the Pharisee? Will we leave this place justified, forgiven by God? Our sin forgiven? Our guilt removed? Or will we go out from here still trusting in our own goodness? And I simply want to say this evening that there is a way in which you can be forgiven. No matter what bad things you may have done. 
no matter how far short you've fallen of your own standards, let alone God's standards. You simply need to pray what the tax collector prayed. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The word translated merciful there is a very unusual one in the New Testament. It's a relational word. It means to conciliate someone, to appease someone whom you've offended. Unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector knows his problem. It's not that he's better or worse than anybody else, but that he's offended God by the way that he's lived and what he's done. Only God can forgive him. Interestingly, the word is found in only one other place in the New Testament where it says that Jesus made atonement for the sins of the people by dying on a cross, bearing the punishment we deserved, taking our guilt on himself. Now, through Jesus, we can experience God's mercy. We can know God's forgiveness. We can be put right with God. And this happens when we come to God like the tax collector and simply say, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Writing to Christians in in the city of Rome, the Apostle Paul, great missionary ambassador, said, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian is not someone who thinks they're better than everyone else. A Christian is someone who knows that they're not better than anyone else. And before God that we are guilty. We need his forgiveness. But we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place, bearing our sin and guilt, so that we can be forgiven. This is the good news of the Christian faith. It's why we've got to have this guest service. It's why this church exists. To share with you the wonderful news that you can have peace with God, be put right with God, and that when you stand before God at the end of your life, you can do so with confidence, not in yourself, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news. That same Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Corinth about this good news. He says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. This message is on behalf of God. We're appealing to you. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Get right with God. Be brought back into that relationship with God for which you were made. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of the Christian faith. And I simply ask you this evening, I thank you for coming, are you right with God? Do you know God's forgiveness? Have you been reconciled with God? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you simply come and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner? You can do that this evening. It's the most amazing thing. Like that tax collector, you can come into a place like this, it's not a temple, this is just a building, and you can simply say, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And God will forgive you, put you right with himself, and give you a new start in life. Let's pray together and ask God to help us to do that.